Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you and we honor you and bless your holy name this morning. We've gathered in this place, Lord, to worship you, to sing your praises, to rejoice in all that you are, in all that you have done for us, even in our Lord Jesus. We are so grateful for so great a salvation that we possess in him. That, Lord, the debt of our sin has been canceled in full. That you have imputed to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we now stand in him, holy and blameless in your sight. Fully reconciled to you and adopted into your family as your children. Oh, Lord, what privileges are ours. We thank you for all that you are to us and all that you are doing in us. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit who is working in our hearts and causing us to hope in the Lord Jesus and to press on and to persevere in the faith. O Lord, eagerly awaiting your soon coming kingdom. O Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. I ask this morning, Lord, as we look into this text of 2 Thessalonians 1, that, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying to your church. I pray, Lord, that these things would be clear to us, that we would think deeply about what you have written in your word, and that, Lord, we would see its application even unto our daily life here and now. We thank you for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, that brings us back to our study in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Last week, we just started to get into the text of chapter 1, verse 1 and following. And uh, in in getting started, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. In the format of this class, because we have so many folks, it's really difficult to try and address questions um, on a regular basis. And so the, the, the method I've done in the past to address questions is, if you have a question about something I have taught or a text or something, um, feel free to write that question down and give it to me. And what I'll do is I'll go away and I will uh, provide a response for that question. And then the next week I'll come back and I'll read the question and I will um, address the question. So there is a way that, in fact, you can address any questions to me in the course of, of our teaching. And, and uh, the class then can also benefit from uh, the questioning and the thought process. And that goes for questions which may even be a contradiction to things I'm teaching. I'm more than happy to try and address any questions you may have even if they seem like they are a challenge to things that I have presented. Surely when we get on the topic of eschatology, there's a lot of controversy. And um, as you, if you were here last week, you saw that I presented a post-tribulational view of the timing of the rapture. And uh, of course, that's a very controversial thing in evangelical Christianity because the, uh, uh, the different views that people take on eschatology. And so uh, I just want to let you know that if you want to ask a question or you even want to ask a challenging question, I'm more than happy to try and address that for you. One other thing is toward the end of last year, actually at the end of last year's class, we had a special session for questions and answers. And uh, that special session, we answered a lot of different questions that people had been thinking about in the course of the teaching in 1 Thessalonians. And that special question and answer session was recorded, and it's on the website as well. And there's also a handout where the the questions that people were asking uh, are actually on the handout as well. So there's a lot of data there uh, to look at. A couple other things I want to mention is, if you're kind of listening to last year's teaching and you're trying to catch up with me on the things that I've taught and so on and so forth, I want to mention that I, I uh, preached twice last year on Sunday morning filling in for Pastor Tim 
talking about eschatology. On one morning, I, I preached on Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 31. Uh, and then there was another morning where I preached on the text of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. You might remember that. And so that really was kind of part of our teaching on First Thessalonians last year, but it kind of happened outside the scope of this class. So if you're looking on the website and you want to get those two sermons, the one on Matthew 24 and the one on Revelation 20, you'll find those on the website under the Sunday morning teaching rather than on the adult uh, Bible class. Okay? Is that clear? Okay. So then, with that, I want to also encourage you to be reading this text that we are studying in 1 Thessalonians. Read it again and again and again and again and again. Sorry, 2 Thessalonians. In the course of your devotional reading, because we're diving in so deep to this text, go and read the text and become very familiar with what the text is saying. And I, I promise it will help you benefit much more as we come here and we really begin to focus in on, on the exact words and phrases that, that Paul is using but then also I want to encourage you, especially starting next week, because next week I hope to get into verse 7 and following, which is dealing with the second coming. I want you to also read the Olivet Discourse. So if you get some time, or if you will, make some time to read Matthew 24 or Mark 13. Uh, either one of those passages would be good or both of those passages. They're very similar. Um, as we kind of dive in and, and uh, start looking uh, again at the second coming and at some of Paul's eschatology here in, in the second letter. And also, next week I'm going to be dealing with the issue of preterism. How many of you know what preterism is? Wow. I've got eight hands. <laughs> How many of you know what preterism is? Okay, there's a few more. Okay. <laughs> that that happens too. <laughs> that happens too. Here, I'll just kind of give you just a basically uh, preterism is the belief generally that prophecy has been fulfilled. You got it. Okay? Of course, there's many variations of preterism, right? So in, 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 in the typical distinction is you're either a full or a partial preterist. <laughs> Therefore, meaning that you either think all prophecy has been fulfilled or if you're a partial preterist, you think that there still remains some prophecy that will be fulfilled. But then... The other thing to keep in mind when you're trying to grasp what preterism is, okay, if we're talking about amillennialism or postmillennialism or premillennialism, you remember all those terms? Yeah. Um, we're not talking about preterism. In those discussions, we're talking about futurism. Okay? So that... Futurism is, if you will, the opposing viewpoint of preterism. And preterism is the opposing viewpoint of futurism. But if you believe there are yet prophecies to be fulfilled, for example, the second coming of Christ in the clouds with power and great glory, then you are a futurist. Okay? And again, when you start trying to talk about these things, there's so many different views that you kind of, they overlap and it's rather difficult. However... Next week, Lord willing, and I have breath and I'm here, I'm going to talk about preterism from the text of Second Thessalonians and I'm going to talk about the doctrine of eminency. And um, I just wanted to kind of give you that heads up. I had somebody that came to me last week with questions about preterism. And uh, I had not addressed it in the study in First Thessalonians. And I think it's a really important thing to address when we're talking so comprehensively about eschatology, okay? So I'm going to deal with that next week. But I want you to be reading the text in Second Thessalonians, and I want you to read, again, the Olivet Discourse, if you get a chance. At least uh, read Matthew chapter 24, that one chapter. 
uh, it'll be a big help as we start diving into these things. So that brings us then to the text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes and says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I had talked extensively um, about this uh, introduction that Paul gives because this is identical to the introduction in 1 Thessalonians. So if you went back to page 6 of the notes, there is a, an extensive discussion about that. But just a couple things I wanted to point out. Remember, uh, who is Silvanus? Silas, right. His common name in the scripture is Silas. So it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. Okay? And um, <clears throat> one of the other things I, I wanted to point out to you was that um, Paul is the author of both First and Second Thessalonians. Um, Paul uses the personal pronoun I in both letters to refer to himself as he's writing to the church. And uh, that, that's an important thing to note. But then he goes on here and he says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is notable that this is an exact quote from the intro to 1 Thessalonians. Paul again refers to the Thessalonians as the church and also as possessing a union with both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here reminds us that we are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about these terms. Remember how I was saying we have a tendency to, to kind of read right by these greetings. And, and really there's a lot being said here. When Paul says that we are the church and that we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's using language that comes from Jesus' teaching that says that we are in the Father and we are in Christ. And Christ is in us and the Father is in us. This is a profound thing that happens. And when you are born again by the Spirit of God and adopted into the family of God, you enter into a union with Christ and a union with God. It's an inseparable union. And uh, we, of course, we call, in theology, we call this our union with Christ. This union with Christ and with the Father is a great mystery of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, there's a sense in which it means that we have entered into a union with Christ. And we have entered into a union with God the Father. Amen? We are in Him and He is in us. And this, of course, is the New Testament term we so often uh, see where we are in Christ. It's a very profound thing to consider, being in Christ and Christ being in us. In fact, all three members of the Godhead are said to live in us and us in them as we share in and experience the divine and eternal life of God himself. Consider the wonderful and powerful love and affection for God and Christ that wells up within our hearts. What amazing love is this that dominates our soul with such strong affection. Amen? Amen? And every true Christian knows this love of God. It's a powerful thing that dominates their heart and their life. Amen? Amen. It's a thing of which is such a mystery we can hardly find words to articulate it. Amen? And so what do we do? We sing His praise. We sing about His glory. We sing about the wonder of knowing Him. We sing about the wonder of being known by Him. But words escape us when we try to express what is happening inside of our hearts. Amen? Amen. It is this amazing love and affection that we share with God and with Christ. It is, in fact, the experience of the very life of God within our souls which comes from our union with Him. We are in Christ, and He is in us. This wonderful union with Christ is seen in many places in the New Testament, and here are just a few. And so I gave you some references there for the idea of union with Christ. 
But uh, it just so happens that I came across this quote just yesterday or the day before. Uh, this was on um, that blog post that's called Of First Importance. Many of you know uh, about that. If you don't, it's called Of First Importance. Just go to Google, type in Of First Importance blog, and uh, you'll see this amazing ministry that these brothers have uh, the, the out at Westminster East. And they, uh, they put these posts up regularly. But the topic came up this week on the union with Christ, and I wanted to read this quote to you um, that was posted in the blog. It says this, It is in virtue of your union with Christ that sin is blotted out, guilt is canceled, the curse averted, justice is satisfied, God is reconciled. Now, why is that? Because we are in Christ. Amen? Amen. You get what they're saying there? That all those things together are our benefit because why? Because we are in Christ and He is in us. Amen? Amen. They go on. It is in virtue of your union with Christ that the promises of the covenant of grace are yours, that the riches of heaven's treasury are yours, that all that is Christ's becomes your portion and inheritance. Now think about that. It is by virtue of your union with Christ that everything that Christ possesses is now yours. You are what? Joint heirs with, God, with uh, Christ. We are in him. Right? Romans chapter 8. What is it? Verse 15 and 16. Or 17. Somewhere right in there. He goes on. It is in virtue of your union with Christ that his grace is yours to strengthen and sustain you. That his spirit is yours to guide, enlighten, and comfort you. That his intercession is yours to secure for you all needed blessing. That his power is yours to defend you from injury, to secure you against defeat. His heart is yours into which you may pour all your sorrows and receive his sympathy. His home is yours to be your everlasting abode that where he is, there you may be also. Amen. Think of all the glorious things that flow from this idea that we have union with Christ. Are you with me? Listen, we are in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? What thing shall defeat you, Christian? At what point shall your hope fail? Answer? Never. Never. Right? Listen, even if they kill us, we pass into glory. Amen? And in the meantime, it's nothing but glory to glory. Amen? And if you're not experiencing the glory, something's wrong. Amen? Because that's how the Scripture describes our salvation, does it not? That we are being transformed into His image from glory to glory. Amen? Well, it is a wonderful thing to consider that we, the church, are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is always so filled with favor towards his people. Even when he writes to correct, he still reminds them of his warm love for them and his wishes for their well-being. This is not just a formality, but should be the mark, but it should mark the desire that every Christian has for all other Christians, that their lives would abound with God's grace and peace. May our hearts be ever filled with warm affection for the saints. You ever uh, kind of stop and think about how warm Paul's greeting is for the church? You ever stop and think about he's always it's always it's always this desire that he has that the church would be filled with God's peace and filled with God's joy and filled with God's favor. Amen. And think about is that the way that we view other Christians? Do we, do we always have a warm and benevolent heart that's wanting to cast favor and blessing 
to other Christians, dear family, this must mark us. And, and, and if not, if we're filled with antagonism at the thought of other Christians, or we are continually uh, 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 frustrated and, and disgruntled by the thought of other Christians, I'd like for you to consider and think in your mind about how God sees his people and see it through the words of the apostle here. Listen, he wishes grace and peace to God's people. Amen? Why? Because God is a gracious God. Therefore, Paul is a gracious apostle. Amen? And he's desiring peace. Listen, he's a peacemaker. Amen? And this is what he wants for the brethren. He's always filled, listen, with warm affection for the saints. Amen? Let it be said of us. Let it be said of us that we're always filled with warm affection for the saints. Amen? I think a lot of times we, we have difficulty holding a disagreement with other Christians and yet treating them with the kind of honor and dignity that they deserve. Amen? I know I struggle with this at times. And the Lord is teaching me as I grow in Him that His desire for His people, His longing for them is for grace, for favor, and for peace. Amen? Should that not mark me that much more because I'm a recipient of his grace and peace? Amen? God help us. He goes on, verse 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And so he writes here in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Here Paul gives God the glory for the progress of the Thessalonians' faith. You see what Paul's doing? He's about to commend them for their growing faith and love, and he's going to commend them for, for standing fast in the midst of persecution. But in so doing, he opens up by saying what? We thank God for you, right? We thank God for what he's doing in your life, amen? We thank God that he's revealing his glory in you, even as his virtues are seen in you, amen? And so before Paul commends any man, First, he thanks God. Amen? Amen. And so, <clears throat> it is only fitting, he says, if Paul is to commend them, that he recognize the source of the blessing and privilege. And so, he affirms, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. Notice, it is we, that Paul, as well as Timothy and Silas, are thankful together for what God has worked among them. And you remember, that's no small thing. Right? This little church only got discipled for three or four weeks, and then they got run out of town. The apostles got run out of town by an angry mob, and this little church became a model church for their entire province, having sounded forth the gospel in all of Macedonia and Achaia. Remember that. This little church is a remarkable church. I, I can't find words to express what had happened in this young little church in Thess Thessalonica. It is an amazing thing that happened. And, um, you know, these brothers are so thankful. Of course, they were all three there. Paul and Silas and Timothy were on the missionary journey together. And when they came to Thessalonica, they preached the gospel there. They uh, made disciples for that short period of time that they were there. And then about after three or four weeks, they were run out of town. So they all kind of had part in, in the disciple-making that took place in that short three-week period. But what came from that was a model church. It's a glorious, amazing thing. I mean, I think about some, some of our, our churches. For example, our church. You know, we, we've, we've been a congregation for some 13, 14 years. Uh, 
and the kind of disciple making that has gone on for years and years and years, and yet we haven't sounded forth the gospel in all of New Mexico, now have we? Are you with me? You see what a profoundly amazing thing took place in this little Thessalonian church? And not only that, that all happened while they were being severely persecuted by the mob that ran them out of town. The mob that ran Paul and Silas and Timothy out of town is the same mob that came back and continued to persecute those who were following them. And their, their persecutions are spoken of in these letters as something very severe. This isn't a mild persecution by any stretch of the imagination. Paul likens it to the kind of persecution that was going on back in Jerusalem. Right? You remember that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? Uh, he likens it to that persecution that was going on back in Jerusalem where people were being beaten, jailed, killed in some cases, and having their property taken from them. Right? <clears throat> this was a, an amazing thing that happened in this little church. And Paul says, we are thankful to God for you brothers and for what God is doing. I think it's just a glorious picture of how God can take uh, idol-worshiping Gentiles and turn them into worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The transformation that takes place in the new creation is something that is otherworldly. Amen? It's a supernatural thing. It transforms us. It changes us. And that is seen very clearly in this little Thessalonian church. Would you agree? He goes on, he says, Because of your faith, or because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater, therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Notice here the specific things that Paul is both commending them and thanking God for. That your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And also he says that your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. See here the daily goal we strive for as Christians. Listen that we may have enlarged faith and abounding love. You know, I don't know how you think about this, but I think, you know, here's Paul. He's, he's commending this little church, and he says, your faith is enlarged. You have great faith, he says, right? And what? Abounding love. Abounding love. I think this, these are glorious thoughts. When you think about your Christian life, you know, what, what is it that you're living for? You know, when, when, when Paul writes and he says, set your mind on heavenly things, not on things that are on the earth. What do you live your life for? What are you giving yourself for? What are you focused on? What are the thoughts and the intents of your heart on a day-to-day -day basis? And here is what I'm saying. This is the daily goal for Christians. Listen, enlarged faith and abounding love. Paul prays again and again for the church that their love would abound, he says, in Philippians 1. More and more, he says, I pray that your love would abound more and more in real knowledge and depth of insight, he says. Right? That, that the Christians, that just love would just be dripping from them. Amen? Are you with me? And faith. That faith would just characterize our lives. That we're so devoted, we're so devout followers of Jesus, that people look at us and say, oh, that's a man of faith, that's a woman of faith, that's somebody who trusts God. It's, it's so evident in their life. Their faith is enlarged, and their love is abounding. Amen? Don't you want to be characterized that way? Yeah. I certainly do. I certainly pray to God that our church would be characterized like that. That we would be a people of great faith and a people of abounding love. Amen? God help us. God help us to allow these virtues that the Spirit is working in us to come to fruition. Amen? It is remarkable to note that after the visit of Timothy and the delivery of the first Thessalonian letter, that Paul is still greatly encouraged by the faith and love of the Thessalonians. 
So if you remember back in 1 Thessalonians, he was commending them for the same thing uh, back in the first chapter. And he was saying, it's remarkable who you people are. You know, we weren't there very long. We didn't really have a chance to pour into you. And yet, you, here you are, this example of great faith and abounding love. In, in, in fact, you, you, love, you love so much, you're willing to sacrifice your life and sound forth the gospel in your whole province. You know, he's giving these evidences of their, of their election there in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, it, it's just an amazing thing. But notice... So after this whole discourse has transpired, several months have gone by. Uh, the, the first Thessalonian letter was delivered, right? Then whatever happened after that, Paul got some report back after that. Then he pens Second Thessalonians in reply. And at the time that he's penning Second Thessalonians, he's still greatly encouraged by their faith and by their love. These are marks on, on this young church. Whereas Paul had commended them for their faith and love in 1 Thessalonians, now he says that both have increased. Look what he says. He says, your faith is greatly enlarged. So that great faith they had some six months or a year before, now he says your faith is increased. Your faith is enlarged, he says. Right? And he doesn't just say, so has your love. Listen to what he says. He says, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And he's talking about how their love is just growing. And their love is just abounding. Amen? What a glorious thing to be said about anybody. So much so that he is still making a boast of them. He says, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. You know, I can just see Paul. And he's got some dead church up there in Sardis. Right. And he's and he's trying to uh, to fire them up. He's trying to light a fire under their uh, uh, under their faith. Right. And he says, let me tell you about these Thessalonians. You know, you guys think you got it tough. Let me tell you something. Right. And he this is what he says. We speak proudly of you among the churches of God. It is remarkable that Paul mentions this in both letters as a distinguishing mark of this young church. And I'll remind you of the quote that he had uh, said in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 and 3. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. You see, Paul had mentioned their faith and their love, and here now he says it's enlarged, it's growing. And your love, he says, grows ever greater. The love that you have each one of you toward one another. Where should your love be focused? Toward one another. I don't know about you, but I have this idea. I want to try to pass it on to you. Of which I fall way short, but I've got a goal. And this is it. I don't want anybody in my life in the course of my life, to say that I did not love them. I want to be a man that's marked by God's love. Amen. How about you? I don't want a single person that comes across my life and, 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 and comes to know me and see me say that I have not loved them. And, you know, I fall so short of this. I look back on my life and I grieve over times where I have, have even, maybe not even, maybe I loved them, but I didn't manifest my love to them. And it wasn't clear to them. And they didn't understand. You see what I'm saying? I want people to understand clearly that I love them by my words, by my actions. Right? And this is so often where I fall short. I don't want that to happen anymore. I'm purposing in my heart to try and love people that are around me on a day-to-day -day basis. Are you with me? Because this is important. I want the love of God to be growing ever greater that I have toward every one another that there is. Amen? Are you with me? Family, unless we purpose in our heart to, to let these things happen, listen, we're just, you know, we're swept away in all the busyness of life. 
And listen, I'm as busy as the next guy. But I'll tell you what, I, I, I want people to see Christ in me. And this manifestation of Christ here that Paul speaks of is love growing ever greater toward one another. Amen? May our lives be characterized by this. In these statements, Paul both properly honors God for his grace and power at work in them, and he commends and encourages them. So so not only is he honoring God because their faith is growing and their love is growing, he says, as is only fitting, right? Um, But he is also at the same time commending and encouraging them. And, you know, he's not trying to give them a big head. He's trying, to, he's trying to pat him on the back and say, hey, you're doing a fabulous job. You're glorifying the Lord even in the midst of such great suffering that you're facing. And he's commending them. He's saying, your faith is growing. Your love is growing. And as if to say, keep it up, brothers. Amen? We don't want to become complacent now, do we? We want to press on toward what? Toward the mark of that heavenward call that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? We never want to be satisfied where we are with our faith. Have you thought about this? How far has your progress come and what's the next step for you? Have you given some real thought to how your faith ought to be enlarged and increasing now? Have you given some thought to how your love can be growing and being manifested toward one another? And toward God. Amen? May these things be ever before us. May we have our mind set on heavenly things. Amen? See here that the Thessalonian church, at the time of the writing of the second letter, is still a model church of diligent faith and abounding love. Paul rejoices at their progress, saying, Your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. The very things that Paul had been praying for them back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. So I want to point this out. God answers prayer. You believe that? If you don't believe that, I wonder why you pray. You with me? So here's what I'm thinking. Paul is kneeling down back in 1 Thessalonians. Right? And he's praying. He's praying for this church. (laughs) We're making mention of you in our prayers. Right? For what? For For great faith and abounding love and steadfastness of hope in the midst of their persecution. Right? So that by the time of the writing of the second letter, guess what's going on? Great faith, abounding love, steadfast hope in the midst of persecution. Amen? I think when we're praying, we need to be thinking about the fulfillment of our prayer. And I think that the confidence grows as we know we're praying according to the will of God. Are you with me? That's why I think it's so profitable to pray uh, Scripture. Because there are things in Scripture that become crystal clear that this is God's will for somebody. Surely, for example, if you're praying for a fellow brother that their faith would grow and that their love would grow, you know this is in accord with God's will. Amen? And your prayer is what? Powerful and effective. Amen? Are you with me? And so this is how we need to think as we're praying. You're praying for those kids? You're praying for that kid's salvation? You got a big cloud of doubt? Or do you have confidence that God is mighty to save? Are you with me? Surely if God placed that kid in your family, he's, he, his desire is that they're saved. Amen? Of which I might add your prayers are one of the instruments of that salvation. One of the means, if you will. Amen? <laughs> I'm not going to go chasing that rabbit. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. Here is a demonstration. What Paul says to these... Seth Thessalonians is a demonstration of answered prayer. Whereas he was praying some six months or a year earlier, now he sees the fulfillment of it. Amen? It's remarkable to note, I think, that God answers prayer. So then, notice he commends each and every believer 
for the way uh, that they love one another. Moreover, their great faith is abounding during a time of severe persecution and affliction, which you, uh, so Paul adds, your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. You know, he's sitting here commending them for their enlarged faith and their abounding love, but he says this is going on uh, uh, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. And, you know, it's like a real quandary here that um, these people are in. They're in a very difficult spot. They're in a very hostile situation. And instead of being a weak church that's covered up and pressed down, what are they instead? They are a church of enlarged faith and abounding love. I think it's just a glorious thing that this persecution works in the church. Maybe it's one of the reasons why so often in the American church we don't see these kinds of signs. What kind of signs? Great faith and abounding love. Maybe what we need is a little bit of fire. Amen? I suppose God will decide that at the appointed time. Right? But one wonders when we see this example of what's going on in the Thessalonian church, how these things apply to us living in such an affluent culture. Right? Well, First <clears throat> Thessalonians 1, 6, um, Paul had mentioned this earlier. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And there he's talking about how, um, you know, here they come to this little church in three weeks, they're discipling them, and then they get run out of town. And this is what Paul says about them after they left. You became imitators of us. You know, those Thessalonians, they caught on. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are on this journey, right? And they're getting their rear end kicked everywhere they go. Every town they land in, it's only a matter of time, right? And then they get run out of town. And, and of course, Thessalonians was a, a Thessalonica was a perfect example of that. And, and yet, even though that happened, here this little church caught on. And they said, hey, you know what these guys do? They go out and preach the gospel. And they do it at great peril to their physical selves. You know what? Maybe we ought to do that. Right? Paul says, you became imitators of us. And you received the word, he says, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so that he, he of course, the very next verse in, in, in uh First Thessalonians, Paul is saying that you went and sounded forth the gospel in all of Macedonia. You see, this little church, they did what they were taught. They caught on to what those apostles were doing and they became imitators of them. It's an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. He writes again in First Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And so there's where we kind of get a picture of how severe the suffering was, because we know it was really severe back in Jerusalem. It is remarkable that now at the time of the writing of the second letter, they are still undergoing serious persecution. As the following verse tells us, Nevertheless, not only do they endure But these Thessalonians thrive in the midst of this severe treatment, described here as persecutions and afflictions. Remember that this young church had been an example to all the other churches of their great commitment to evangelism in which they had sounded forth the word of the Lord in their entire region of the world. And this they did in spite of the fact that they were under much affliction and many persecutions. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 7 and 8, he said, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. I mean, it's just an astounding thing that God did in this little church. 
Um, but it, it is an amazing thing to consider uh, what they were facing and yet the example that they became. He said, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So then, see here the mighty power of Christ to transform lives. And even when the devil wages serious war against his work, the church only thrives all the more, abounding in faith, love, and persevering through the worst of affliction. Amen? You know, we have an example of how the Christian hope never fails. It's right here in the Bible. No matter, no matter how small that Christian group may be, no matter how severe the affliction may be that the devil seems to wage against them, look what happens. When God does a sovereign work, let me tell you, ain't nobody going to keep them quiet. Amen? It's an amazing thing to consider. Not only that, listen, if the Bible points to this little church and says they are an example to all the believers, what does that say to us? We should follow after them. They are an example of how a church, corporately a church, should respond to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Amen? And so I'm praying. I'm praying confidently that our little church will sound forth the gospel in our whole region. That we will be in a model and an example of that. That we will, in fact, respond just like these Thessalonians responded. That we have received the word with much joy that we have received the word in faith, why shouldn't we also sound forth the gospel? Amen? Let us be agents. Let us be gospel preachers wherever God has sent us. Wherever you find yourself, tomorrow on Monday, later in the week on Thursday, that's the place where God wants you to be a gospel minister. Amen? He wants you to sound forth the word. Amen? God help us. He goes on, he says, This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, I want you to think about this text, and this is one of the reasons why I want you to read the text again and again throughout the week, so that when we come to dig into it, It's really clear in our minds what the text is saying, okay? But Paul says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Stop. What? What is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, okay? What I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to get you to think critically about the Scripture. Think critically about every little verse and what it's saying, okay? There's something very important that the Spirit of God is communicating here in these words. And I'm going to explain it to you. But I'm wanting you to think just in your normal reading as you read through Scripture. Stop and think. What is he saying? Don't just read by things. But but stop and give some serious thought to what God is saying to us in the Scripture. Obviously it's very important. Or he would not have included it. Amen? And so it's important to consider. So he says... This is plain indication. Well, obviously, that kind of pushes us back to the prior verse, right? So something that's going on in the prior verses, let's put it that way, or in the context that he's already explained, becomes then a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. All right? It's funny, you get to the commentators and, you know, they're, they're uh, reading these things and there's three or four different opinions about what it means, you know? And it's, it's odd to me that Jesus is so confused. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, you know, the Lord's not confused at all about what the text of Scripture says. And it can't be option A or B or C. It's one or the other, right? But nevertheless, there is a truth that God is intending to communicate in the text of Scripture, and that is the truth. The truth isn't more than one, and the truth doesn't contradict itself. Amen? Amen. And so I I always think about, well, you know, when I come to a hard passage, I think, Lord, you're not confused about this. 
so, so help me not to be confused. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, so then the Lord says, well, okay, we'll stop and, and do your diligence here. Study this thing out. Think about it. Think deeply about it. Contemplate it. Consider what's being said. Right? So, uh, if you will, we, we, he goes on. He says, the plain, the plain indication here is what directly proceeds in context. Your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. That is, at the righteous judgment of God, the persecutions and afflictions that the Thessalonians are enduring will be both the evidence of their perseverance and faith as well as the evidence for condemnation for their persecutors. Okay? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying... This persecution that you're enduring is, is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. That's what he's saying. Well, what, what is it indicating about God's judgment? It's indicating that they were, in fact, faithful Christians. And it's indicating that those persecutors are in for quite a day of reckoning. Because God is withholding his judgment right now, right? Now, Calvin, man, he goes into this big old huge thing about how God holds off on his judgment because he is, he, they, they are storing up wrath for the day of God's judgment and that that day on that day it's going to be one terrible terrible day for those on the wrong side of the fence right and, and he, he talk, he, I mean he goes on and on pages he's going on for pages talking about the righteousness of God and withholding his judgment and, and, and how uh, God is working so many different purposes in that. But it's all, you know, you wonder, God, why are you people suffering? You know, why haven't you come to deliver them? Mm-hmm. Right? I read this and I wonder, you know, well, how come Jesus didn't show up? Isn't that what Paul said? Mm-hmm. He said, he says, you're going to receive relief, right? When the Lord Jesus is revealed in flaming fire with his mighty angels. Well, guess what? That never happened in the life of these Thessalonians. You with me? And yet he was teaching them to think of Christ's return as eminent, right? And he was teaching them to live in expectation. He was even comforting them with the thought that Christ was going to avenge their enemies, right? That 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 Christ was going to come and 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 bring uh, uh, destruction to their enemies. So it's an amazing thing to, to to think through all of these things. You know, God, what are you doing? Well, I, I, I think that uh, what God is doing is, is the, the course of history. Amen? And all of these things are for us become a demonstration of what God is doing. Going on here, no one will wonder or, at or question either the wicked or the faithful if God's judgment is righteous at the great day. Because the evidence will be so plain that the Christians were so unjustly treated. You know, one thing for sure about persecution, man, it draws a line in the sand. Does it not? And you know what Paul says about that? He says that's a plain indication. What he means by plain is, it's obvious, it's evident for all to see, what? That God's judgment is righteous. When God judges those people that persecuted those Thessalonians and people that persecuted Christians down through the ages, no one's going to wonder if God is righteous in bringing his judgment on those persecutors. And no one's going to wonder if those Christians were the actual faithful ones because there they are going to be with the king. And he's going to be there, their avenger. Right? Bringing his vengeance on their enemies. No one's going to wonder. This is a plain indication. These persecutions will be Serious evidence implicating the wicked of their unbelief and rejection of Christ. And the, pers- and the perseverance and faith of the Christians will be the plain indication of their genuine belief in Christ. For they did not shrink back even under great pressure. Do you see how them standing firm in their persecution is a plain indication that they are faithful Christians? Are you with me? Because... Look, even when threatened with physical harm, they would not shrink back. Amen? And that's why the scripture tells us to stand firm in all our faith. 
Amen? Even to the point of death. Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death, he says, and I will give you the crown of life. Amen? That's in the letters to the seven churches there in Revelation. So it is on account of their enduring perseverance and faith that they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, the very thing for which indeed you are suffering. So here's this thought, okay? What Paul is saying is, the fact that we see you persevering in the faith through much affliction and through terrible suffering, listen, gives evidence that you have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Okay? Something that we, we cannot read into this. He's not saying because you suffer persecution, that makes you worthy of the kingdom of God. Do you understand? That's not what the apostle is saying. Do you understand? We don't, we don't earn being counted worthy of the kingdom of God now, do we? How is it that we're counted worthy of the kingdom of God? It is on the merits of Christ that we have received by faith, amen, that we are counted worthy of the, of the kingdom of God. So what does Paul mean? Here's what he means. He means that you standing firm in the midst of all your persecutions and, and trials is a plain indication, right, that you have been counted worthy of God, worthy of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a plain indication that God's judgment is righteous, and it's a plain indication that you have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. This is what Paul is saying. He makes a similar point in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. There he writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. You see what Paul's saying? This is a, this is a theme in Paul's teaching. He knows this. He sees this. He says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. When you have opponents, uh, uh, mark this. Mark this. That God is righteous in his, justment, in his judgment. And that their opposing you is a sign of their destruction. But it is a sign of your salvation. That's why they're opposing you. Amen? He goes on. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And so Paul is encouraging these Philippians and he's saying, look, it's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. And when that happens, let me tell you, that's a sign of your salvation and it's a sign it's a sign of their destruction. We should never presume that we always know what God is doing. Are you with me? I mean, it's one thing to study and learn and grow and understand. And yeah, God is in his providence is working out the course of history. And, 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 and it's, a, it's one thing to love and study who God is. But let me tell you something. We're not God. and We don't have all the answers, do we? And when we look at a cert, certain set of circumstances happening us around us, let us be very careful, right, to, to cast a judgment. Let us be very careful. Amen. He goes on, why is it that these Thessalonians are suffering? I go on, sorry. Why is it that these Thessalonians are suffering persecution? <laughs> the simple answer is that they believe and preach Christ and him crucified as God's only way of salvation for a world of rebellious sinners. And because of this, Many unbelieving people so strongly oppose the message that they reject, ridicule, and even physically harm those who preach it. Have you ever thought about this? Why is it that people in the world persecute Christians? I mean, it's, it's a marvel. It's a marvel. I mean, what, what are we telling them? We're, t- we're telling them, there's a, there's a coming wrath. Flee from the coming wrath. You can be saved. God has provided a way for man to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved from the coming wrath. You're telling them the most loving thing you could possibly tell them. 
Are you with me? And in many cases, this Christian love is demonstrated with outpourings of huge giving and sacrifice. I think of, you know, something like, for example, an earthquake in Haiti or a or, or a famine in some place in Africa. And these Christian relief agencies show up and they've got millions and millions of dollars worth of food and things that they're, they're pouring out on these people. And they come with a message. They come with them. Hopefully they come with a message. <laughs> right? But they come with a message. What's the message? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved from the coming judgment of God. Right? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but God justifies freely those who trust in Christ. Amen? And, and, and yet, listen, the world so vehemently hates Christ and the message of Christ that they will physically harm Christians. Okay? But I want to make a distinction about that. It seems evident to me that because these Thessalonians were so vocal about their faith that they were the objects of much affliction from the unbelievers. You see, one of the reasons why they were in such severe persecution because they weren't quiet. They were speaking up. That seems very evident to me. Because Scripture says they sounded forth the gospel in their whole province and the next province over, right? We know they were very vocal. Well, guess what? Not only were they very vocal, but they were very persecuted. And that little thought process causes me to wonder, how vocal are we? And why is it that we're not enduring persecution? Well, maybe it's because we got our light under a bushel. You follow me? <laughs> and let me ask it another way. Why is it that you don't share the gospel more often on a regular basis with those around you? And so, hey, look, I'm not trying to bring condemnation. I'm just trying to say, as I read these things about this church, I'm thinking God is trying to light a fire under my rear end. Are you with me? And he's trying to get me to speak up and say what I ought to say and be the gospel minister he's called me to be. I struggle just like you do with the fear of man. Okay? And I also know that I don't want to struggle with the fear of man. I would rather fear God. And I'd, I'd rather be like Paul, who he says is innocent of the blood of all men because I did not shrink back from sharing the whole counsel of God with you. Amen? That's my goal. I want to be an evangelical Christian, don't you? God help us. Most people in the world are perfectly accepting if you believe such a thing. But it is when you preach the message that they become inflamed. You know, especially in our world, it's so tolerant, you know. Oh, yeah, you got that Jesus thing. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad you found a way, brother. <laughs> you know? But the minute you start telling them, but wait a minute, did you know that you're a sinner too? And did you know that God is so angry with sin that if you don't find a refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is going to justly punish you for your sin? And did you know that the wages of sin is death? Did you know that right now you don't stand in God's favor? But rather you're at enmity with him? Did you know that everything you do provokes the anger of the most high God? Start telling them that. You start stepping on a few toes, don't you? And that inflames people. See, they're perfectly accepting for you to be a Christian. That, that even makes them smile. But as soon as you tell them that they're subject to the Christian message as well, they become inflamed. Okay? Thus my point. If nobody's inflamed around us about it, maybe we're not vocal enough. You with me? I said maybe. It's not necessarily the case, but it certainly could be and probably is in most cases. Amen? You with me? Okay. Learn here, the suffering and persecutions that Christians endure because they believe and preach Christ and Him crucified is genuine evidence of their real faith and genuine evidence of the unbelieving rejection of their persecutors. That's what the scripture says here when he says this is plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Amen? Let's pray.
God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we have the privilege to know your amazing love and forgiveness. I pray, God, that you would strengthen us and encourage us to be evangelistic. Lord, to open up our mouth and speak the gospel to those who so desperately need to be saved. Lord, to see our life and the people that you've placed in our life as divinely there by divine appointment. That, God, we might be one who gives testimony of the Lord Jesus and of his salvation. We thank you for this privilege. We, we thank you, Lord, that we bear your name and that you've called us to this ministry. And so, Lord, we ask for courage. Give us courage, God, to boldly speak forth your truth and let us do it with much honor and respect for others. Let us do it in a way that is acceptable to you. We thank you for all that you are to us and for the great salvation that you have given to us because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen. Amen.